Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Leslie Kern. Leslie Kern, PhD, is the author of three books about cities, including Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies, and Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World. She is an Associate Professor of Geography and Environment and Women's and Gender Studies at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick, Canada. Her research has earned a Fulbright Visiting Scholar Award, a National Housing Studies Achievement Award, and several national multi-year grants. Love to hear the sound of multi-year grants, my own addition to this bio. (laughs) She's also an award-winning teacher, and her writing has appeared in The Guardian, Vox, Bloomberg City Lab, and Refinery29. She's also an academic career coach, helping academics find meaning and joy in their work. Another word that I love to see is joy, something that comes up quite often on our show. So I want to welcome you to the deep dive. Welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. You know, I I was going to say that there's no way I could ever get your name wrong because my middle name is Leslie. And, um, my dad's name is Leslie, so I'm, I'm, oh, my nice. middle name is is to kind of keep my dad's legacy well and alive, like him, 82 years and strong. Um, Amazing. <laughs> Hello to your dad from a fellow Leslie. <laughs> thank you, thank you, a fellow Leslie, and uh, you know, as someone who who came here in 1970 from Guyana, um, my mom came shortly thereafter. Um, she's from Barbados, and. They were obviously not living here, but my dad came here to go to school. We've been sort of ground zero on gentrification. Like my my life has been a tale of urban renewal and gentrification. <laughs> you know, um, I've seen it all in the fifty years that I've been on this planet. So when I saw that you had had this new book, gentrification is inevitable. This conversation was inevitable. This is a topic that often <laughs> that often comes up on the show. I've had many different guests that gentrification comes, even if we're not specifically talking about gentrification, it comes up, whether it's the sort of physical city-based gentrification that you go into so much detail about, or what I call like cultural gentrification, where spaces are are co-opted for corporate and other nefarious means. So having said all that, why the book? Why gentrification as as a topic? Well, in in my day job as a professor, as you said in the introduction, gentrification is one of the areas that I do research on. I'm an urban geographer, and I kind of got interested in the topic of gentrification uh, back when I was doing my PhD, and I was studying um, condominium development in Toronto. That's my hometown, and there was this huge building boom going on everywhere. And I came at it from a sort of different angle. I was a women's and gender studies PhD student, and I was interested in this seeming phenomenon that young women were buying up condos and they were living this like sex in the city uh, kind of lifestyle. And this was some form of women's empowerment. So I was like, well, okay, let's dig into this a little bit. But through that process, I had to become an urban geographer. I had to learn about processes like urban renewal or today's more warm and fuzzy term, urban revitalization 
both of which can sometimes be code words for gentrification, this you know movement of middle class, white, wealthier, more powerful groups into uh, the city. So after Feminist City, my, my previous book, was like what? Well, what else? What else could I? Uh, what else could I put out there? Oh yeah, gentrification. That's something else I, I know a bit about. And was thinking there's not that many books out there that are kind of meant for a wide audience of people, um, for really anyone who, like you, has sort of lived gentrification, seen it happening in their world, wondered about it, worried whether they were a gentrifier or not, wanted to understand it in in a better way, and. You know that that was the impetus behind uh, putting this book together. First of all, I, I can't leave a, a mention of Sex in the City unexamined. I'm a huge fan of the show. the The new reboot, not so much. But I did I did hate watching my way through it, and oh, me too. hate watching my myself through a, a second season. But um, <laughs> I'm with you. I use um <laughs> I often reference things in in pop culture like Sex in the City. Because I'm, I'm reminded of one of the more cringy episodes where Samantha has moved into the meatpacking district, right? She gets sexed out of her of her original place because she lets in a prowler, right? And has to like and has to like move into the gentrifying meatpacking and runs into at the time, you know, people who are who are trans, but at that time played for a terrible joke, right? Like I think if we had to look back on that episode, it'd be like, ooh. What were, what were they thinking on, in the mm-hmm. writing room of, of Sex in the City, right? But in a, in a pop culture way, that, that show did show the movement of gentrification that was happening in, in New York City at that moment, right? People moving into the previous meatpacking, which is now accelerated. Absolutely. And similarly, I think it, it might be in the movie where Miranda is moving to Brooklyn and trying to figure out where in Brooklyn she can move. And She's uh, out walking and she says, white guy with a baby, white guy with a baby, follow him. Oh, she's in Chinatown, actually. She'd already moved to Brooklyn in the final season of the show. Right, right. Which made me really angry because I'm a lifelong, overly enthusiastic Brooklyn resident. And it's weird. I'll, I'll just give a little anecdote about why that bothered me. But I think it's it's germane to the story. It's not just us talking. <laughs> it's um because very recently, even though Brooklyn is like a big gentrified place, and I recognize Brooklyn, but I don't recognize Brooklyn at the same time, right? As recently as I would say like 2010, I would still be going into the city, meaning Manhattan, and oh, you know, have doing the usual cocktail talk, right? And I was, oh, where where you live? Where do you live? Oh, I live in Brooklyn. You know, and it used to be a white person telling me this. A black person would never tell me this, but a white person would look at me and say, "You know, I've lived in the city for 15 years, and I've never crossed a bridge." Right? Like that used to be like a a thing of pride that white people would say, right? To kind of be like, "Oh my God, Brooklyn, what's that like?" Right? Like you're talking about Antarctica, and then something changed, and I used to really resent that, and then something changed, and now I wish it had never changed. Like, I wish mm. they'd never started crossing the bridge. Right. <laughs> right? Because they have ruined yeah. Brooklyn. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, that funny story is to say that many people, I think, around the world, because I think one of the great things you do in the book is to talk about how this is not a phenomenon of a few cities. This is is something that looks very similar, whether it's New York, Toronto, Shanghai, I, won't, I don't really call Dubai a gentrified place because it's kind of built to be what it is, but 
on and on and on, right? I think there's many people around the world who feel like me, right? Like they know their place, but they no longer feel like they know their place. Absolutely. And in the book, I try to bring that out because in in a lot of cases, people are not always physically displaced from their neighborhood for whatever reason they're able to remain or, or kind of in close proximity to the places that they've always lived. And yet there's still a feeling of displacement, a feeling that home is not quite home anymore, that the faces that you see on the street, the languages that you hear, the, the smells that you smell, the music that's playing, the general vibe has shifted in a way that can make even longtime residents start to feel very unwelcome and kind of alienated from the spaces that they've been in, sometimes for you know decades or multiple generations. So I think that's an important thing to bring out about gentrification because often we focus, and, and not wrongly, but on people who are, you know, priced out or evicted or, you know, their building is torn down and they have to move maybe even out of the city altogether. And that is certainly one of the harms of gentrification. But there's also this, you know, emotional side to it that is uh, very serious, I think, and is is not just, oh, it, it feels bad, but it also changes the rhythms of people's daily lives, their support networks shift, their neighbors change, the places that they relied on to kind of help them get by in hard times are no longer present. And these have a real impact on on people's, you know, ability to to survive in the city. You know, I think that emotional piece that you highlight is an interesting one. And and I want to spend a, a little bit more time on there before we really start to get into the weeds here. Because oftentimes when I, you know, you just talk to friends casually, there is this notion that, oh, we're just kind of being old, right? In the sense that we're reflecting on, remember when Fort Greene was like, insert these things, right? Remember when Habana Outpost was just for us, right? Like, you know, I'm naming these very specific places in, in Fort Greene, right? And now they're different. And where do we draw the line or find a distinction between just nostalgia for parts of maybe your youth or things like that, and the real emotional displacement that you just described and go into detail in the book? That's a great question. I don't know if it's totally possible to to disentangle those things, but I think you're right. There's, you know, cities change, neighborhoods change, people recognize that that's nothing new. And there is often that sense of nostalgia, which I think is as, as much a nostalgia for just youth itself as for the places, at least in my experience, uh, thinking about who I was 20 years ago, and it's kind of mapped on to certain places. And, and when those places change, it's like a piece of me is gone. So thinking then about, okay, yeah, what when does that shift to this perhaps more, I don't know, almost a devastating sense of loss, I think is when people feel like there isn't any other place for them, right? That it's not just that the club that they went to in their youth is gone, but it's that there's no comfortable barbershop to go to where they, you know, see people of their own age group, their race, the community that, you know, immigrated to that place with them and and so on. Places that they can't afford anymore, quite simply, right? Places where the cultural foods or or goods that they used to buy, those are no longer there. So it, it 
kind of morphs into this sense of not just the places have changed, but there's been something that's been lost, something that's been kind of taken away from that community, things that they can no longer access and and places that they no longer feel welcome in and sometimes are treated quite uh hostilely by the 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 owners, the other patrons, the you know, increased policing that can come with gentrification and so on. And you know, I'm very big on definitions, right? I think that gentrification is is interesting because I think it has like many different definitions, right? And it's also as much defined by what it is and also by what it isn't, right? And I think how you frame that so perfectly in the book is that the inevitability of of gentrification is a lie, right? Like I love when people are like straight to the point and just call things what they are. So there there is this, I think, non-scholarly opinion, right? In the sense, and when I say non-scholarly, I mean that there's just people living their lives every day that aren't reading up on development projects and this, the way their city is moving. They're just living life, right? So I'm not making a, a judgment on that. I'm just saying most people are just as, as concerned as they are about real estate is like, what's my rent? You know, can I buy a house? They're not thinking about like these big urban development projects, right? By and large, I'm painting with a broad brush, but you get my point, right? So I think to the largest segment of that population, they view gentrification in the way that you have framed it, that this is just inevitable, right? That someone's going to see that these places over here are cheap and they're going to start to move there. And then as they move there, there'll now be new services, new other things will follow and boom, gentrification will happen, right? It's this process like the glaciers melting or the currents or what have you, right? And I think what you do so excellently is make the counter argument that that's a lie, or as I would say, that's some bullshit, right? So, which could have been another subtitle of the book, you know, (laughs) justification is edible. That's some bullshit, right? (laughs) Um, Maybe second edition. So um, I I want you to kind of, if you can, like take us through like that stark reckoning of what it is and what it isn't and why that so-called inevitability lie is so seductive. Sure. Well, I love that you mentioned uh, the glaciers melting as as a kind of analogy there, because I think most of us know that the uh, rate, for example, at which the glacier, glaciers are melting is not natural in the sense of inevitable or was just something that was always going to happen. We know that it's accelerated through human-caused processes through, you know, industrialization, pollution, greenhouse gases, all of, we, we know all of that, right? But because it's so uh, ubiquitous, this kind of climate change that we're seeing, it's very easy to slip into this kind of feeling of like, it is inevitable, and there's nothing we can do about it. Granted, it's an extremely hard problem, and we're not going to reverse it quickly. But what we, we don't want to get lost is that human made factor, right? The fact that human decisions, policies, choices that are that are ongoing to this day push that process forward in particular ways. And the same can be said of gentrification. We see it everywhere around us. I don't blame anybody for thinking it's inevitable because it seems like every place you turn, every corner you you walk around on the street, you see it every time you, you know, get your n- notice of of rent increase, 
it's happening to you. Of course, it feels inevitable. But what we often don't see, in part because it's kind of hidden from us, veiled, um, in part because people, yeah, they don't want to spend a lot of time sitting around thinking about like urban policy or, or what developers are up to. We don't see those very real choices, the actions, the agency that's behind the particular direction of urban change. Because as I said earlier, change uh, change kind of is inevitable, right? Change is nothing new in cities. In fact, it's part of what people like about cities, I think, is that they they aren't the same from day to day. But the direction of change, the particular kinds of change that we see, there's nothing inevitable about that. Choices are behind those things. So coming back to this question of, of a definition of gentrification then, I mean, for me, it, it is core to the idea of gentrification that we don't think it's inevitable, but to even dial it back a bit further, to me, gentrification is about power. It's a process of groups of people, investors, businesses, uh, whatever kind of group you want to talk about who have more power, often in the form of wealth, but it can also be racial power, other forms of cultural power that come into a space and make it over in ways that are in their interests. Again, often financial interest, but there's other kinds of benefits as well that people gain from kind of taking over space and remaking it in their own image. As for what gentrification is not, um, you know, gentrification is a term that that's used quite widely to refer to cultural processes, as you um, alluded to in our earlier chatting. I don't think that's a bad use of the term, but it's important to recognize, I think, when it's being used kind of metaphorically rather than talking about a specific urban process. And again, the idea that gentrification is like an organic urban process, that it's somehow part of a city's DNA, that's not the case. I mean, it's kind of right there in the name if we break it down that the term gentrification, right? Right in there is that notion of class change that's very much tied to a kind of capitalist urban system. None of these things are inevitable. And in many ways, they're, you know, if we think about human history, they're pretty recent. So there's there's nothing to say that they're inevitable or immutable. Absolutely. And what's interesting is not 100% just related to this conversation, but in the, in one of the things that the show critiques a lot are some of the things that you just mentioned, the, the, the capitalism, which relies on certain myths, right? The, the myths of infinite growth, capitalism, people who are like proponents often explain it in this idea of like progress, right? Like things are always getting better in some way, right? Like, well, you don't want to go back to insert time here because things sucked, right? Isn't, isn't it better now because capitalism? And I kind of feel like sometimes gentrification is framed the same way, right? That you know, like I said earlier, I grew up 70s and 80s in New York, right? It's real New York, like I say in my bio, like not this candy cane New York that we have today, right? And I'm not pro a proponent of violence, right? Like I'm not out here saying like, man, when I had to run from point A to point B to avoid getting killed by Decepticons, which was a street gang here in New York in the 80s, that was fun, right? Like, no, that shit <laughs> sucked, Right. Fort Greene, an area I mentioned earlier, I went to high school in Fort Greene and going from Brooklyn Tech 
to Pratt, where we used to have track meets, was like running a fucking gauntlet in Mad Max. Like we had, it took an entire track team of 30 to 40 boys and girls to move together as a group to safely navigate what was maybe a mile, right? So I am not saying to turn back the dial to 2000 deaths in New York City, which was 1990, the year I graduated from high school, the most people murdered in New York ever, right? Not trying to go back to that. But also not trying to go to a Fort Greene that has pretty much, you know, disappeared most of its black and brown residents and has become a neighborhood that, like I said, I don't even recognize anymore, right? So how do we square those two ideas when a lot of this hinges, and again, I'm talking from a popular perspective on this notion of progress and safety. Fort Greene wasn't safe in the 80s. Fort Greene is safe now. (laughs) Yeah, great points. And I, I think you're totally right that gentrification is almost always portrayed as a kind of progress, a march towards something better, um, an improvement in people's lives. And often, if you express a kind of anti-gentrification view, people will say, well, don't you want those communities to have nice things? Shouldn't they be safer? Shouldn't they have a new park? Shouldn't they have nice places to get a cup of coffee? Shouldn't they have a, you know, a, a nice grocery store? Don't poor people, don't communities of color deserve those things? Well, yes, of course, they deserve those things. If in fact, they want those things, that's maybe <laughs> another point. But when we talk about gentrification, it, it, so, you know, go go to Fort Greene, it's safer now. Who's it safer for, right? What about those people who no longer live there? Are their lives better, right? The, the people that were displaced, do they now live in safer communities with nice places to get coffee and, and clean, green, uh, pollution-free environments and great public transit and quality housing? Probably not, right? They've been displaced to somewhere that might have even been worse or their community has been broken up and they no longer have support networks, all those kinds of things. So the question is kind of who is Fort Greene better for, right? It, it might be better for the, the people that who can afford to live there now, but was the cost of displacement of that previous community worth it, right? We, we say, don't it, they deserve nice things? They do. They didn't get it, right? Those people didn't get those things. They fought for them for a long time, probably. They fought for environmental justice, they fought for safer communities, they fought for more investment, and then they were basically kicked out or found it extremely difficult to stay. So there's, you know, a, a really important kind of justice question that's that's built into that broader kind of narrative of progress and improvement. And, you know, it's also another thing that you, I think you do really well in the book is you speak very plainly to those communities, whether they are Black, Latino, Indigenous, that that seem to always be at the center of this displacement. And it, it is not to say other groups don't also get displaced. And that's what's so tricky, right? Because these are intersecting and entangled forces of displacement. And I'll just give another example of that from a a documentary, My Brooklyn, right? Which not as many people should have seen as I think the documentary was worth. And I say that because to me, I'm editorializing a little bit. It's been a while since I've seen it. Like I haven't seen it in years. But what what I knew it did very effectively was talk about the intersection of gentrification by highlighting 
primarily Fulton Mall, which is this long stretch of commercial property in Brooklyn that kind of goes from like Flatbush Avenue extension down Fulton onto like into downtown Brooklyn, like what we would consider like Brooklyn Heights. So Court Street and all that kind of shit where Borough Hall is and blah, 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 blah. So I'm giving a little geography lesson for those who are not as connected to Brooklyn. And Fulton Mall for me when I was growing up was the spot where you can go buy pretty much anything. There were a lot of hustlers out there with the three-card Monty and all that kind of stuff. Wasn't particularly safe, but it was cheap. And it was largely populated by Black people, most Caribbean. And the shops were owned by a smattering of Black people, but mostly a lot of South Asian folks. But that has also changed and kind of fluctuated. And what the documentary does a really good job of is talking about how the plans to gentrify and develop, quote, quote, develop downtown Brooklyn pushed a lot of those people out, including all these interlocking communities, the people who were buying things, the people who owned the buildings, the people who owned the store, that were renting the stores, setting up their stands. And those people look like a lot of different things, right? And so after all this, it's like, how do we cut through those realities to capture those types of intricacies? Because they're happening not just in Fulton Mall, they're happening in in lots of places. And as someone who still lives in Brooklyn, I'm actually down there quite often, Fulton Mall is like empty now. Like it's not only empty storefronts, but it doesn't have anywhere near the aliveness of people, right? Even though it has more quote unquote stuff. (laughs) So I know I just dumped a lot and I would highly recommend my Brooklyn to anybody go find it, but I'm like, you capture so much of that. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that hodgepodge of shit that I just shared. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have a few thoughts and I'm also a big fan of that movie and I regularly show it uh, to my students when we, when we talk about gentrification, because it, it, I agree it does a good job of like teasing apart some layers around race and class and also exposing kind of policy and development policy and, and, and its impacts. What I'm hearing or what I'm picking up from from what you're saying is a couple of things. One is, you know, Fulton Mall, the, the pre-redevelopment Fulton Mall was a very diverse place in terms of both what you could find there, who the business owners were, who the typical patrons were, there was a lot of, I don't know, I don't like to naturalize things, but almost like a natural diversity, right? Like different groups came together for sort of their own purposes and were coexisting relatively peacefully most of the time, you know, everybody kind of had their business and so on. And when we have projects like the the redevelopment, which involved what condos, kind of shopping malls, corporate brand stores, all of that kind of stuff, right? we get this homogenization, right? A, a lot of that difference is kind of evacuated out of the place or really flattened through the, you know, the, the homogeneity. I mean, you could walk, you know, down a street and you see all these corporate brand shops. Well, what city are you even in? It looks the same in Toronto. It looks the same in Shanghai, right? It's the same brands, the same style, the same aesthetic. There's nothing unique about it. There's nothing that kind of brings people from different groups together. I mean, that's what cities are supposed to be, right? Where difference comes together and we have these encounters and democracy is born if we're if we want to get really, you know, high-minded about it. And it's also this not just diversity, but but the humanity itself, that kind of human 
level development, right? All of the kind of, even even if it was kind of chaotic at times, maybe at Fulton Mall, there was like human connection and interaction going on. And when we get these um, corporatized spaces that, as you say, so often end up empty, there's hardly anybody there. Uh, we might even wonder, are people living in those apartments? We don't know. Probably in a lot of them, no, because they're not spaces for people anymore. They're spaces for capital. They're just spaces for capital to circulate and profit to accumulate. They're owned by investors who may never, probably have literally never set foot in Brooklyn or on, on Fulton Mall, right? They could be half a world away. It's their money that's sitting there. It's their investment that's sitting there. So this is what we we see so often with gentrification is that kind of removal of the human level of things and it's spaces that are purely for capital, not for people. Yeah, it's 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 just stunning. You know, when I when I walk down there and I and I like I said, I do spend some spend time down there, I often wonder like who's down here? Like a place that used to be shoulder to shoulder people, for better or for worse, like on a regular day going down Fulton Mall, you couldn't navigate that easily. And but it was bustling, like it was working. There was commerce. Now I feel like it's like a ghost town in a weird way, unless you walk into like a City Point mall where there's a little bit more people. But again, even that was built on like an outdoor, first it was built on an old mall called Albee Square Mall. Then they had like a little outdoor thing that was sort of like, you know, like a little fair kind of thing was set up on the weekends. They got rid of that, right? So it's like, I don't know, it's just it's just weird. And I'm kind of very personalizing it because I have seen so much change sold to Brooklyn, basically to move Black people out and move white people in, you know, and that's that that seems to be just the playbook, right? Let's let's figure out a way to actively force these people out so we can rezone or redo the apartment building. And and landlords are some of the worst offenders of this, right? They will allow buildings to fall into disrepair, force, you know, black and brown residents to leave by neglect, right? <laughs> and 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 then the minute they're out, the rent goes up three, four times, the building gets re, um, refurbished. And so it kind of brings me back to your earlier point, like, why didn't they do all that when these other people were living there? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, what you've described with the kind of things falling into disrepair, right? We use that language, it fell into disrepair. Again, it kind of naturalizes it, right? That things kind of inevitably fall apart entropy of the universe, I guess, or whatever. But ultimately, those are also choices, right? The choice to do nothing, the choice not to, for landlords not to repair those buildings, the choice for governments not to reinvest in maintaining public housing, right? We see that all of the time as well, where these places have been allowed, permitted, or actively encouraged to fall into disrepair such that governments can then say, oh, well, we can't actually renovate or improve it. We just have to tear the whole thing down. This happens in Canada as well, where many of the, the large public housing projects that we have that sit on very valuable central city land, right, which as public housing are very resistant to gentrification because they're not open to the circulation of capital. So how do you make that happen? You let it fall into disrepair and then you say, well, we got to redevelop it. It's going to be expensive. How are we going to do it? Better get a private partnership with a mega developer who's going to come in and, and rebuild. 
And oh yeah, sorry, read the fine print. There's only going to be half as many social or public housing units in this new development as there were before. But you know what? It's going to be just great for everybody because, you know, being around white middle-class people just, you know, uplifts uh, everybody's lives and spirits. That's a whole other theory that, that we have operating with gentrification as well. But again, these are sort of deliberate choices. And that's why we have to really resist that view of these things as inevitable, natural things that, that are bound to happen when in reality, again, they're, they're the result of choices that, that often very powerful people are making. And oftentimes, what, what I discovered painfully through this, this process, because we, myself and some partners, so shout out to my former partners from Amber Art Music Space, which never opened partially because it was taken from us in an imminent domain grab, right? So years ago, myself and two other guys were in, invested heavily in opening up a music, an art and music space in Fort Greene, you know, take advantage of the new Barclays Stadium, you know, like, so, you know, we kind of bought into that, right? Like, I'll, I'll speak for myself because the two of them are not on the are not on this, but you know, I I bought into all that Barclays stuff, and you know, I never really cared that much about the Dodgers, but you know, all of that was sold to Brooklyn from Marty Markowitz, who was the time with the borough, the Brooklyn borough president. That like Brooklyn lost the Dodgers in whatever year that was, and now we're going to get a world class stadium and bring an NBA franchise and lift all boats, and so we were like, fuck, that sounds perfect, right? Like let's <laughs> let's build an art and music space, right? which we then didn't even get a chance to do because of something like eminent domain, right? So a lot of this is also very personal, right? As you kind of go through these, these stories. But I think about how when we started really getting into the, into the fabric of what these projects were, how long standing the plans have been in place. Like the, the Brooklyn downtown empowerment zone, which was like BAM and Mark Morris and all these like city people, Manhattan people, they've had these plans since like the 90s, right? And here we were like three, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs thinking we were like discovering like fresh bread, <laughs> not knowing that we were kind of putting ourselves in the targets of something that had existed, you know, at that point, 10 to 15 years before we even had the concept, right? So how do we kind of frame these movements in the way you have their powerful people, but they're powerful people that have been working on this stuff for like a long time, right? Like they're not waking up today thinking about, hmm, the Bronx, right? Like <laughs> they're already thinking about it, right? So how do you think about that or or square that with the realities of, again, the day-to-day -day things that people are dealing with? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking again, you know, to take it down to the the kind of everyday level, it's like when and this happened in a neighborhood that I lived in in Toronto for many years called The Junction. At a certain point, a, a Starbucks was imminent, right? <laughs> the, the rumors were, were flying. This was back in the day of like, where you had like online neighborhood forums, not next door, but like blogs right? <laughs> where people would post, uh, Starbucks is coming. This means gentrification is coming. But actually, once Starbucks is thinking about coming to your neighborhood, like gentrification has already happened, right? Starbucks is not the gentrifying force. I mean, it can continue to propel gentrification, but like it doesn't show up to gentrify, right? It shows up in a neighborhood where they already think they have a customer base 
that's going to happen. So yeah, often I think sometimes the signs of the the most obvious signs of gentrification, it's kind of a lag, right, between like the processes that have been going on more subtly and sometimes behind the scenes by people who are buying up uh, properties, for example, they're they're slowly accumulating what they would call a portfolio of real estate, right, of of different buildings, houses, businesses, and so on, because they are indeed looking ten or fifteen years ahead. That's very difficult for your average community member to keep tabs on, right? I mean, we're not trolling these real estate sites or trying to figure out who the owners are, and often it's very hidden because those folks who are going to buy up, you know, 10 different buildings in that neighborhood, they're going to use different uh, LLC names and numbers to do that, right? So you're never going to know that it's actually the same people. Even governments have a really hard time keeping track of this, right? So I think that is a real challenge because often by the point that a community like rallies around something and wants to push back against a development that's, that's coming, like, it's very difficult to do anything once people already own those properties, once they've, you know, taken advantage of certain policies or tax incentives, all of those things like the the fight is almost coming too late. But again, it doesn't mean it's ever fully too late and that there's nothing people can do. But I, I think it's it's very challenging, I'll just say, for like everyday community folks to really know what's going on behind the scenes in a neighborhood. And that lag that you talked about or that you just mentioned in your in your response i find that i'd be curious to get your thoughts on how that lag affects what is something that is systemic and versus something that is individual right cuz again it's, it often seems like we're talking about gentrification in terms of yours and mine individual choices right like once you know you mentioned starbucks and it's always like you know coffee Right, like coffee is always one of those like so, so somewhat early indicators, right? That like, hmm, is there a sort of bespoke coffee shop opening? Like, you know, coffee, cheese, wine. You know, it's like these are sort of like the popular notions of when I think a regular person goes like something's happening here, right? But to your point, those are now pointing us in the direction of individual choices, right? Like where I'm choosing to get my cheese, right? To the extent that I want cheese, where am I choosing to get my coffee? And I think, I don't drink coffee, but I think what the book so excellently highlights is that these are part of systemic moves, right? This has nothing really to do with where do I want to go buy a croissant? (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, again, good old good old Brooklyn has just provided us uh, so much fodder for for conversation about gentrification. But the the stereotype of like the Brooklyn hipster. I mean, now this is probably like slightly aesthetically out of date, but like skinny jeans, dark rimmed glasses, a beard, a kind of shabby style, right? Carrying your like laptop bag with your MacBook and and so on, like easy to point at those people and go like, they're the gentrifier, they're the problem. Uh, they're bringing all of this to my community. They're they're pushing me out. And I don't want to say that those people as individuals have no responsibility for what's going on. But your average kind of skinny jean hipster is not the owner of that portfolio of, you know, six buildings where they're getting ready to renovate elderly tenants who have nowhere else to go, right? That person 
maybe they were pushed out of their neighborhood because they got rent evicted and now they're searching for the next affordable place, right? And again, it's not that they have no responsibility or no power. They, they may well have other forms of power that they are enacting. They may well be a problematic force. But I think a lot of the time we maybe uh, waste some of our energy or our productive, righteous anger kind of pointing at individuals or or saying, oh, you know, Philip, why are you going to that fancy coffee shop? Why aren't you supporting, you know, the the local diner, blah, 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 when really the true kind of perpetrators, at least now in the 21st century, right, we're not talking about house by house gentrification in a lot of places. We're talking like neighborhood by neighborhood, huge block by huge block. We got to be looking at our politicians. We have to be looking at the developers. We have to be looking at uh, investment industries, pension funds, like there's all of these really powerful financial and political actors that are propelling gentrification and making a lot of money off of it, uh, such that if we're just kind of angry at the the hipster, like we're, we're not really going to be tackling the foundation of the problem. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. But that that hipster is such a seductive target, right? Like, because they just, they just embody so much that's annoying. And it's and it's and it's you're right. It it has moved beyond the hipster because I've I've found it's now actually like families, right? Like it's in in my non-academic perspective, but of someone who moves around, again, this is I'm talking about just Brooklyn, right? Like this is like family movements. Like I've watched this sort of like reverse white flight, maybe it's white entry. I don't know how, there's probably a term out there that I don't know, but it's like people used to want to go to the suburbs and kind of do the suburban thing. Like, oh, we're moving to Jersey, we're moving to Connecticut or Westchester. Now it's the opposite. They want to come to Brooklyn. That's their move, right? They want to go from like Upper West Side, Upper East Side, and now they're coming to Brooklyn so they can get more bang for their buck, right? (laughs) Like like, that Mm -hmm. used to be the thing. Now it's less so. But they're willing to kind of do that. And it, it makes me think about, you know, and I don't want to bang white people too much, but fuck it, you know, like, um, why not? <laughs> why not, right? We could take it. Yeah. It's early. <laughs> let's 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 start our Tuesday that way, right? <laughs> I just feel like they're like permanent tourists, right? Like they just come into these spots and they want to they wanna experience it just enough to say that they're in the new place, but they don't want any of the real new place energy, right? They want to instantly start to change the rules, right? So I, you know, and there's all these anecdotal things, like people moving to Harlem, and then there's like a, a party in Harlem every Sunday. They don't want the party no more, right? Fort Greene Park has a dance party. They don't want that, right? Why is it so noisy here? Why is it so, all these things. And I'm like, motherfucker, didn't you just move here for this? Like, you could have moved someplace else. So. What is it in that sort of permanent tourist mentality? Because I, I do think that as much as we do need to look at systems, that that does factor into it. I totally agree. I think that's a great way of putting it, permanent tourists. It's a kind of an extractivist model, right? We think about certain kinds of tourism, maybe many kinds of tourism that are kind of like going and, and taking something in, in a way, often in ways that can be quite harmful to the, the communities that live there or using 
kind of tourist spaces, whether we're talking about like the French Quarter in New Orleans, New Orleans, or going to Hawaii, right? And using those space to like live a different life <laughs> for a moment, but in ways that can be quite damaging to uh, the longtime residents that are there, whether that is in terms of like the noise that your you know partiers make or environmental destruction or, you know, giving money to wealthy like hotel corporations or Airbnb, all of these kinds of things. So we're seeing that, I think, as you say, with this kind of gentrifier mindset, which is to kind of go in and, and take what you want to take, right? Take what appeals to you, maybe, yeah, I don't know, the, the food or something like this, which is often a kind of like less like it's a more uh, consume. It's a, literally a consumable kind of thing, right? But when it comes to noise on on the corner at night, when it comes to like the the actual kind of day to day practices of the the longtime residents, um, the way that they use public space, activities they engage in, and so on, people don't want it. And this is where we get into the way that that you know that hipster or that family who who might seem kind of innocuous on their own, they can actually do a lot of harm, right? Whether that's, you know, I mentioned the app Nextdoor, right? Where people use this to like report on their neighbors. It's like- Yeah, Nextdoor is racist as fuck. <laughs> super racist, right? Calling the police, which we know can have fatal consequences for people, right? And yet that's something that white people do very lightly because we don't tend to experience those fatal or- uh, violent interactions with the police. So we think that's a perfectly fine way to deal with something that we just find unpleasant in the community, whereas you're actually putting people's lives at risk. So I think you're right. We have to look at systems. But as I said, people do have responsibility for for their behavior, right? When we go into new communities, even if we were pushed out of somewhere else and we feel like a victim of gentrification, you have to think about the way that you're using the different forms of power that you have, whether that's because you're you're white, whether that's some cultural power that you have based on like, I don't know, the industry that you work in or whatever. How are you using that? Are you wielding it against the people that live there? Or are you doing your best to become, you know, a true neighbor in that community? Yeah, neighbors are are hard to come by in a in a in a place like New York. <laughs> you know, we live we live on top of each other, but that sort of community, and again, broad strokes, right? I'm a product of a, of a really strong community that was insular by design, right? Like I only grew up with other people like the story I told at the beginning. We're all West Indian together, right? It was an aunt, a cousin, a this person, a that person. And when they got off the plane, you helped them get their first job. You helped them get that apartment. I mean, I remember my apartment growing up, my aunt lived across the hall. Like she had the apartment across the hall. And then the it was a four family house, kind of standard here in New York. And the landlords were a Jewish family, Polish family, where they lived downstairs, right? So our landlords lived below us and they tolerated me and my sister being fucking annoying as hell, I'm sure, banging things above their heads. But we lived there for as long as they owned that building. And it didn't seem like a, as an extractive situation as it is currently, because if it was, my parents, A, couldn't have afforded it, <laughs> and B, wouldn't have been able to save the house that they eventually bought, right? So, you know, that that movement of, of people, I'm interested also in the, in the class discussion of this, right? Because you mentioned at the very beginning, 
it's like, who's the gentrifier, right? And as much as, you know, we just ragged on some obvious signs of gentrifying, I remember when I bought a place in Fort Greene, perhaps people looked at me as a gentrifier, right? Even though I lived in Brooklyn all my life, went to school in the area, was moving back to the area to a certain extent, I remember that particular time in Fort Greene history, just the, the early 2000s, it was a lot of folks that had a similar background to myself, you know, kind of young professional. We were kind of young relative. We were creatives. A lot of people having their first job out of either college or whatever master's program. And we were all black together, hustling, coming up. But we were the ones who kind of made the neighborhood what, what it was to attract mm-hmm. other people, right? So in some respect, I often look back and I'm like, damn, was I what I despise? <laughs> <laughs> so how do we how do we kind of cut through that that class argument? Yeah, I mean, it's similar to the way that artists sometimes get blamed for gentrification because sometimes with with a neighborhood, whether we're talking about like Soho 40 years ago in New York, or we're talking about I don't know, like in Toronto, Yorkville, which is um, a super exclusive neighborhood, but it was, you know, wall-to-wall hippies in the 60s. It was seen as a just a blight, right, of, of like counterculture and, and weirdness, you know. Sometimes artists seem like the first precursor to gentrification, kind of just what you described, people who are kind of like making the neighborhood into something interesting, bringing different events into spaces, putting an area kind of on the map, so to speak, in a way that it wasn't before. But then what tends to happen, you know, is is that often those folks get pushed out by the next wave of gentrification. Artists in particular are, you know, your average artist is among some of the lowest income earning yeah. people. They're, they're cannon fodder. <laughs> exactly. And even <laughs> folks like what, what you were describing where, you know, you came, you you, you bought a home and, and so on. But your intention, I, and I think, you know, I don't want to get too hung up on intentions, but to some extent they matter. Your intention was not to like extract what you could from the neighborhood and leave, like to not to move in and say, I'm going to sit on this house for 10 years. I'm going to wait to let, you know, property values go up in this neighborhood. I'm going to actively try to make property values go up by calling the police on homeless people and getting them, you know, moved along or whatever it might be, right? And and then go, and then I'm going to take my profit that I've earned from this and move to the next space, right? That's that extractivist mentality. Just simply moving into a neighborhood doesn't automatically make you a gentrifier, even if you maybe have some of those attributes. To me, it's about, you know, what are you what are you doing with that sort of investment in that space? Are you building something? Are you supporting the people who are less well off than you? Are you helping communities stay in that neighborhood? Are you creating spaces for, you know, others to thrive and experience that place? Or are you there to take, 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 take? Yeah. Absolutely. And no, we definitely weren't on that. We just wanted to kick it. Like we were just <laughs> a bunch of, of of screwballs who had no idea what we were doing, but we were living and loving in, in Fort Greene together for many, many decades. And now every time I look at it, I, I cringe at what it has become. <laughs> but um, I, I want to keep us an eye on time here because we're getting kind of close to that witching hour. Mm-hmm. But I, I do want to give you a chance to to talk a little bit about feminist city because it doesn't deal with the same stuff, but it does deal with cities. And now that I've gone through both books, it it almost feels like 
there is this is this is my particular opinion that there is almost like a they bookend one another very well in terms of the thought process and it and it almost feels like if we can incorporate some of the or maybe all of the notions and ideas and the clarity that exist in the thinking of feminicity we can counteract some of the worst abuses of gentrification that's my particular theory as i read both books i'm curious <laughs> if if you see that as well or if you see them as just kind of two separate manifestos <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I thank you for picking up on that. I do see them as working together. My publisher thinks this should be a trilogy. So if you, you know, if you have any ideas for the third book, please feel free to, <laughs> to let me know. But yeah, I mean, I think inherently the kind of the vision of a feminist city, which is a place that foregrounds things like care and care work, for example, that offers um, alternative ways for people to live together that are not based on the traditional patriarchal nuclear family that is intersectional in its approach to, you know, thinking about how different groups can live together and also experience the, the benefits of the city. I think fundamentally that is an anti-gentrification vision. To me, a feminist city doesn't coexist with a gentrified city, even though some groups of women have arguably benefited from gentrification. But generally speaking, you know, to me that that feminist vision is one that is a human-centered vision of the city. It's about city for people. City is a place where we can take care of each other and not just work to produce profit for the already kind of ultra-rich, but where we work to produce benefits, community, mutual support for one another. So yeah, I hope other people also, if they, you know, read both books, kind of pick up on that connection and see how you know, both books are trying to push us towards a vision of a, a more just, more humane uh, urban world. Absolutely. I, I think they, they, they do a fantastic job. And as someone who is a city kid, as I often say on the show, and, you know, I will never not live in a city. And if I'm living in America, which I'm loath to do, but if I am living in America, I plan on living in New York, right? It's this, as much as I bang on New York and bang on this current iteration of Brooklyn, I would find any other place in America completely intolerable for <laughs> for any number of reasons. But I, I think the work that needs to happen in cities is is so critical. And you've added like two really powerful books to our charting of potential new new pathways to, like you said, more just and more equitable city living. So I want to thank you for that. And with that, thank I'm going to get to the final two segments of the show. The first of which is off the dome, which are some rapid fire questions. And I only have two of them, right? Now, I know you are a longtime Canadian residence, but I'm going to ask a, a very basic question. If you had to choose any city that you think is defending itself against gentrification best <laughs> of what you studied and kind of know, um, what would that city be? I'm going to say at the moment, Barcelona as a city that has experienced a lot of gentrification and tourist gentrification, but is actively fighting back and also has a feminist city agenda with a, a feminist urban planning process where they're actively trying to like reclaim the city for people, not cars, not tourists, and, and not capital. So I'm watching their, their battle with great interest. Yeah, Barcelona is one of my one of my favorite cities. I I went there um, as part of this big European 
gallivant that I had years years ago. And um, I went back like almost every year for years. Like I was, I went once and I was hooked. (laughs) (laughs) It's just an amazing, amazing, the energy of that city is just unbelievable. Great city. Um, My second off the dome question is is a little bit of a, of a riff and a joke off of what we're saying about coffee shops and and all that kind of stuff. In your mind, what is the worst offender of the early warning gentrification kind of clues? Is it the coffee shop, the wine shop, the cheese shop, or something else? What should we be alarmed at when we see it coming into our <laughs> coming into our neighborhoods? Oh gosh, uh, I'm probably going to get uh, hate mail for this one. And and as a as a as a vegetarian, I'll just pre apologize for this. But probably your like vegan uh, restaurant or quote unquote vegan cheese or vegan meat shop. This might be a, a serious sign. That gentrification is probably well well underway. I love I love good vegan food and. As I say, I'm a, like a lifelong vegetarian, but I, I gotta, you know, note that that sometimes the the vegan uh, kind of culture can can be a little bit self righteous, maybe if we're allowed to say, and and that doesn't go well with kind of the humble attitude that one might need to really be a good neighbor in a gentrifying neighborhood. Absolutely, that's that's a good one. I, I'll I'll throw even a little bit of a twist on that. If I see like vegan attached to something that's typically not, yes. then I'm like, what's going on there? You know, like if I see like a vegan Caribbean shop, I'm like, you don't yeah. got no oxtail, you don't got no chicken. Nah, that's that's on some fuck shit right there. Like yeah. I can't trust that. <laughs> yeah. you, you are definitely not West Indian if you hit me with that shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Because the closest, like my parents are vegetarians. They're fake vegetarians because I'm like, they eat fish. I'm like, there ain't no West Indian person in the world that's going to not eat at least fish. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So good luck with that one. <laughs> so <laughs> those are my two off the dome. And now we get to the drop, which is the final segment of the show. And the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything at all with my listeners. I typically go first just to set the stage. Because I used to give people the choice and they would always be like, you go first. And I'm like, fuck it. All right, I'm just going to go first. Cut out the middle person. And um, given the continued rise of conservative bullshit and fascism in the United States, um, most commonly typified now by a vile human being like a Ron DeSantis, and their continuous pushback on real education, real history, real knowledge, I'm going to re-up things that I've recommended before which is if you want to have a, a a real framing of some of the challenges that we still face in this country around race and, and culture and politics, I'm going to recommend Reconstruction by Eric Foner and Black Reconstruction by the great W.E.B. Du Bois, both amazing books, much like your books, they should be read as companion pieces to one another. And the only way to combat these people, not the only way, but one of the ways is to arm yourself with as much knowledge as possible so we can prepare ourselves to the fight to happen in the years to come. And so those are my two drops, Reconstruction by Eric Foner and Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois. So you are up. Okay, great question. I mean, if I was to add to yours, I would just throw some Angela Davis on there as well, if we want to uh, get the kind of intersectional gender and feminist uh, approach, especially to, you know, very, I think, 
front of mind questions about incarceration, policing, abolition, all those things that I think are also, to me anyways, gentrification related questions to consider. And yeah, I'll just, I'll throw in a little Canadian plug, just just of a, a memoir that I read recently. It's by Elamin Abdul Mahmoud. It's called Son of Elsewhere. And it tells the story of, of moving from uh, Sudan to Canada to, you know, the, the so-called multicultural paradise of Canada and <laughs> encountering the very real reality of anti-Black racism and, and attitudes in this country. Um, but yeah, really lovely memoir. Highly recommend it. Oh, it sounds really, really good. And, and since you referenced Angela Davis, I'll throw in Ida B. Wells and Fannie Lou Hamer, two other personal heroines of mine, because we always want to be mindful that, yes, a lot of those books back in the day were male-focused, right? So let's bring in other voices where we can. They are just as relevant, if not more so. And the memoir sounds amazing. You know, Canada always gets the reputation as the you know, our nice neighbor to the north, and they own some racist shit too, right? (laughs) (laughs) And we need to own that and not uh, just look to the south and say, well, at least it isn't as bad as in the US. There's no progress to be made by by taking that uh, easy way out. Not at all. Not at all. There's a lot of of fucked up shit going on up there. (laughs) (laughs) And we got it. And we got it. And we got to own it, you know, being, being better than the U.S. on issues of race and, and culture is a low bar. <laughs> That's not a win. <laughs> no. That is, that is not a win. The, the, the floor is not where you want to be stepping up from. But, exactly. but, that's, <laughs> but that's, an awesome, that's an awesome, awesome drop. This has been a, a great conversation. I want to thank you again for, for joining me on the show. The, the books are fantastic. And I look forward to that trilogy. Right. Let's um I'll be back. <laughs> I'll be, be back when the next one comes out. You'll be back when the next one comes out because there's believe me, there's a lot more to cover. So again, I want to thank you for being on the deep dive with me. Thanks so much. Take care. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.